and he saw me and he came directly to me and uh, I, I just kind of stood there and he just kept coming and he, and he said, thank you very much for coming and thank you very much for your work. And I said something brilliant like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of Peters Field Hospital. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'm the managing editor of the website Where Peter Is. I'm joined today by Dan Amiri, and today our special guest is Phyllis Zagano. Phyllis Zagano is a native New Yorker. She was born in Jamaica, Queens, and grew up on Long Island. She holds a PhD from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, and has taught at Fordham, Boston, and Hofstra universities. In 2009 and 2015, she was a Fulbright Fellow to the Republic of Ireland. In 2012, she received the Voice of the Faithful St. Catherine of Siena Distinguished Layperson Award. In 2014, she received the prestigious Isaac Hecker Award from the Paulist Center Community in Boston. In 2016, Phyllis was named by Pope Francis to the Papal Commission on Women in the Diaconate. Her books include award winners Holy Saturday and Women in Catholicism, as well as Women Deacons, Past, Present, Future. Phyllis's new book, Women, Icons of Christ, traces the history of ministry by women in the church, especially those ordained as deacons. In this book, she demonstrates how women were removed from leadership prevented from using their voices, and eliminated from official ministries in the life of the church. Her book also refutes arguments against restoring women to the ordained diaconate. Thank you very much for joining us, Phyllis. I'm happy to be here. So before we begin talking about your book, maybe you can give us a little insight into your background. Why did you decide to study theology, and what inspired you to focus your work on the role of women in the church? Yeah, in 25 words or less, uh, let me tell you. Um, I have five academic degrees and have studied uh, literature and uh, and religion and theology and communication. And uh, I, I guess we could go to the uh, early 1980s when I was working as a researcher for John Cardinal O'Connor. My portfolio was uh, basically political issues. I was the, uh, the briefer for... Um, issues uh, such as abortion and uh, gay rights and things like that to see what was going on in the media and in the city of New York. But in talking with the archbishop, with the cardinal archbishop, he challenged me to write a book about uh, women in the diaconate. And he said, you know, if it's a good book, uh, I'll get it to the pope. And I said, oh, you don't know the pope. And he went off to Scranton. And then when he came back, he was the cardinal archbishop of New York. So, uh, uh, he helped me with the outline for that first book, Holy Saturday, an argument uh, for the restoration of the female diaconate in the Catholic Church. That that got some awards, too. It's also in Spanish. But but he helped me outline that book. And one of the things in that book, in the outline, I remember meeting him in the residence. He said, you know, Phyllis, if you prove that women can be uh, deacons, you've proved that they can be priests. And I said, well, I'm not allowed to talk about women priests. Why are you bringing that up? 
And he said, oh, that's very good. Make that chapter four. So, you know, I, at the time I was writing, there were discussions in Rome about women deacons. But the problem, as the, the archbishop explained to me, the problem was they couldn't figure out how to have women deacons and not have women priests. So he, we talked about it and, and we put that particular chapter into, into that book. So in 2016, Phyllis, you were selected to participate in the Papal Commission on Women and the Diaconate. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that came about and and the role of this commission. I mean, obviously, we had a commission in 1997. As I understand, it was expanded in a document in 2002. Uh, there was a 2016 commission that you were on, and now we have a new commission. So I don't know if you can kind of situate us a little bit and give us some context on this uh, more recent discussion on uh, women and the diaconate. Yeah, well, the same argument's been going on for about 400 years. Uh, basically, uh, were women uh, sacramentally ordained or not? And uh, when you get to 1992, the International Theological Commission creates a subcommittee, and that subcommittee of the ITC in 1997 creates a document. And the document says, well, you know, ordaining women as deacons is no big deal. And that document was printed and it was numbered. But the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the time, Cardinal Ratzinger, refused to promulgate the document. He reformed the uh, the subcommittee. He put one of his former graduate students um, as its chair. He included a member, Gerhard Mueller. And in 2002, they came out with another document, which said that the jobs of women deacons and men deacons were not always exactly the same. Second, that the magisterium clearly distinguishes the diaconate and the uh, the priesthood. And so this is something that the magisterium must decide. Well, what's that mean? That means kick it upstairs. And upstairs at the time was John Paul II, who did nothing. And upstairs then became Benedict XVI, who did nothing. And then in May of 2016, the International Union of Superiors General asked the Holy Father uh, Francis in their, their assembly to create a commission. He said, that's a good idea, and I will. And by August of 2016, uh, he did and put me on it. He asked the UISG to nominate people. They, they were asked to nominate eight people and to hand deliver their nominees to the Casa Santa Marta, residence of the Holy Father. I assumed that Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith was also asked for nominees, so a commission was formed. I found out about it by uh, reading a press release in Italian. Uh, and they had a preliminary meeting for the ones who lived in Rome in September and set a date of the day after Thanksgiving in 2016 for our first meeting. And that's, as far as I have seen, that's the only date that's ever been given out by the uh, Vatican Press uh, press office, except that I would say in late June or early July of 2018, Cardinal Ladaria the current prefect of the Congregation to the Doctrine of the Faith, put out that we had completed our work and that he was sending uh, papers to the Holy Father. So how it happened uh, is the sisters asked for it. Uh, why I was put on it, I, I was nominated. I was the only person from outside Europe uh, to travel uh, to, to Rome uh, for this. And quite frankly, very, very soon, the commission uh, voted that I was the commission expert. So that's what we did. Yeah, I, I just wanted to remind our audience at this point that the issue of women deacons is very much part of the conversation in our church. Some people might look at this interview and think, oh, well, women's ordination is prohibited and, and that sort of thing. But it 
clearly the issue of the ordination of deacons is distinct from the issue of ordination of priests. And Dr. Zagano has made very clear that her work is in full alignment with the magisterium. The church knows that women deacons in the Catholic church are a historical reality. And the purpose of your work on this topic has been to help us better understand what this historical reality was and what the theological implications are, which can tell us a little bit more about what the potential is in the future. Maybe you can help us understand in your years of research, I guess if you can summarize it in a nutshell, what you have discovered about women deacons and what role they played in the church. Well, you know, uh, we've had women deacons. The only person in scripture with the job title deacon is named Phoebe. And uh, she, it is said, carried the letter to the Romans from Paul. Throughout history, the early history of the church of the 12th century, we have women as deacons. Uh, we have a number of ordination ceremonies of women to the diaconate. Uh, some of these ceremonies are identical to the, to the men's ceremonies. Some of the ceremonies for ordaining deacon have, uh, you know, they're going to save papers. So they say, well, if you're going to ordain a woman, you do this. If you ordain a woman, you say this. But they're, they're the same ceremonies. The, the epiclesis is included. The calling down of the Holy Spirit is included in every single one of these ceremonies. And, and I think that's what's most interesting. Typically, for a ceremony for the ordination of a woman as a deacon, between oh, the, the uh, apostolic constitutions and the 12th century, although we do have, uh, have ceremonies that are a little uh, later than that, women were ordained as deacons by the bishop in the sanctuary during a mass in the presence of the clergy through the imposition of hands, by the invocation of the Holy Spirit, that's the epiclesis, and they self-communicated from the chalice, which is a very big deal. They touched the chalice, and then the bishop placed a stole around their necks, and he called them deacons. Now, if they were not going to be ordained as deacons, he would, wouldn't do all that, first of all, but he also wouldn't, uh, wouldn't call them deacons. So we know that women served as deacons, uh, we know that they did a lot of diaconal tasks. In fact, they did a lot more in some some places, in some times, in some territories uh, than men deacons. For example, men deacons would never anoint someone, an ill person, but women deacons routinely would anoint ill women. Why? Well, because a man wouldn't touch a woman. Period. If he wasn't if he wasn't related to her. And as my Maronite friends explained to me, of course, the Maronite women deacons were sacramentally ordained because they did anoint and they, they participated in the sacred. And so you had to be ordained to perform a sacrament. So I think uh, the problem is that uh, you have a, uh, an argument, oh, well, women deacons only help with nude baptisms of women. And we don't do that anymore. Well, fine. Men deacons really aren't that known to have assisted with baptism. So, so you have that. Uh, women deacons took care of women in the assembly. Women deacons took care of catechizing women and children. Uh, women deacons, as I said earlier, ministered to the to ill women by bringing them a communion, viaticum, as well as anointing them. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, ministerial actions that women deacons took far and above uh, what men deacons did. Uh, but as I said, you can't say 
that uh, everything happened every place throughout history because you just did what the bishop sent you to do. Help us understand a little bit about the, the disagreement. Obviously, there seems to be sort of a wide agreement on the facts, what actually happened in history. But maybe maybe there is a disagreement. I mean, you know, where's the, the linchpin here? Where's the, the fulcrum? Like, what is the real issue under discussion with regards to women deacons? Well, I think the, the the historical argument is interesting, and as I said, it's it's been going on for 400 years. A man named uh, Jean Morin studied in the middle of the 17th century. He studied all of the uh, ordination ceremonies of women uh, in Greek and Latin and in uh, Syriac, and he concluded that these were sacramental ordinations and. About 100 years later, another man, Jean-Pierre, said, oh, no, no, they weren't sacramental. Well, who, 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 who decides whether they were sacramental? The women were receiving the same ceremonial uh, ordinations as the men were. So if the women weren't ordained, then the men weren't. And it boils down to an argument that uh, between two Greek words, keratonia and keratonithia, uh, being blessed and being ordained. Well, Here's a newsflash. Those terms are used interchangeably for men, too. So I I, so that that's part of it. So the linchpin that that you're asking for is uh, historically, were they or were they not sacramentally ordained? Well, how does that work moving forward? Well, obviously, if they were sacramentally ordained, then there's no barrier today. So you have to argue that they weren't. Okay. well, why weren't they? Well, maybe because uh, of two things. One is an older argument, which is that women cannot image Christ. And uh, that really really redounds to something called the querelle de femme, where uh, throughout the Middle Ages, people argued that uh, maybe women weren't the same species as men. And uh, there's a whole chapter in my my new book, uh, the chapter on, on altar service, but it talks about the disgraceful ways in which women were spoken about basically because women are dirty and stupid. They, they cannot uh, have any ministerial role. And then there is this iconic argument that women cannot image Christ. Well, it, I find that very interesting because the iconic argument was used in 1976 in a document called Inter and Signores about women priests and said you had to image Jesus in order to uh, be a priest. Then when you get to 1994 with Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, which confirmed the church's argument that it did not have the authority to ordain women as priests, in 1994, the iconic argument is dropped. Why? Well, because you can't say that we're not all made in the image and likeness of God. You know, for further information, please see number 48 in the Baltimore Catechism. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. So the iconic argument is really a confused argument uh, in that it confuses the human male Jesus uh, with the resurrected Lord and uh, the resurrection that that we all uh, reflect in, in, in life. So if you take away the iconic argument, uh, which is really uh, rooted in, in misogyny and, and terrible things that are said about women around the world, um, you then have the other part, which is called the unicity of order. Uh, or the unicity of orders, depending on what language you're speaking. And uh, that says, well, because women can't be ordained as priests, they can't be ordained as deacons, because the priesthood, the diaconate is part of the priesthood, except 
magisterial teaching is that the diaconate is not part of the priesthood. It's uh, you're violating uh, Lumen Gentium 29 of the Second Vatican Council. You're you're violating counter uh, post magisterial teaching, uh, and you're also violating canon law. Uh, and canon law as it was changed by uh, by Benedict the Sixteenth in 2009 with a document called Omnium in Mentum where he said the diaconate is not the priesthood. He made it law. He was reflecting what was already in, in the catechism. So if you, uh, if you argue that the diaconate is, and the priesthood are so connected that, that the diaconate is part of the, of the priesthood, you're also creating an ecumenical problem because uh, Orthodox theology does not consider the diaconate as part of the priesthood. So, so those, those are the two main, main arguments, but, uh, and I, I happen to think that uh, that one is heretical and the other is counter-magisterial. Is part of the problem or part of the, the question with that linchpin, is it because the enumeration of the seven sacraments and, you know, having that set in stone doctrinally didn't occur until after women deacons had fallen out of practice? Like, might that have something to do with it? And so it's a bit of retrofitting Catholic theology to fit women deacons in the past. And now that we've defined holy orders as this sacrament with three tiers in it, with that prior understanding, perhaps of it being a step on the way to priesthood, I guess the question that I have is what arguments are presented uh, with regard to, I, I suppose they would argue that the ordination, the inclusion of women in any part of holy orders uh, is impossible. Is this, and I, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert on the, on the field, but it, uh, what counter arguments are you coming across that perhaps are very surmountable uh, from your research and from, and from what you've studied, but that others may find convincing? Yeah, and Phyllis, I think at this point it might be helpful to just maybe back up a little bit and describe what a deacon is. You know, how, how did the order of deacons come about and what are some common misconceptions about deacons today? Right. Well, the, the major misconception is that a deacon is a mini priest. And, and that is, uh, is something that has, uh, it has, it has two directions. One, uh, because the diaconate was reintroduced as a permanent vocation after the second Vatican Council, but secondly, because of the uh, dearth of priests uh, and the fact that you see deacons vested on the altar, sometimes folks just don't know the difference. But the diaconate is a totally separate ministry. You know, the first ministries in the church uh, was the episcopate. You know, episcopi. We're going to watch over everything, and these are the descendants of the apostles. The next was well, uh, as as we read in Acts. Um, the apostles said, you know, we can't do everything. We need help, uh, particularly dealing with the problems between the Greek-speaking women and the Hebrew-speaking women. So we need folks to, uh, to serve and, and to help with the distribution of food and money, basically. So let's get seven people. And the tradition is that these are seven men. But uh, the diaconate, the point is, and the Holy Father actually mentioned this when he was in Philadelphia in 2015, the apostles realized they couldn't do everything. So they created, they invented the diaconate. And uh, later on, we have the priesthood coming to help the, uh, the episcopacy, but the priesthood is part of the episcopacy, if I may, if, that's, if it's on that side of the street. 
and the diaconate always stayed uh, on the other side of the street. Symbolically, the biggest difference between diaconal and priestly ordination is there are no oils of anointing used in diaconal ordinations, whereas oils are used in the priestly ordinations on the hand and in uh, Episcopal ordinations on the head. So I I think that there is um, a misunderstanding. You always look at functionality. What can deacons do? Uh, Well, let's look at what deacons have done and what deacons should do. And basically, the deacon is ordained to the word, the liturgy, and and charity. And it is from charity, it is from charity, and the charity that the deacon presents uh, and and ministers through in the church, that the deacon is able to break open the word in the liturgy. So the symbolic position of the deacon in the liturgy, you know, is always between the priest and the people. If you look at a real formal liturgy, it's always the deacon who speaks to the people of God. And uh, it's the deacon who uh, assists with the gifts. It's the deacon who mixes the bread and the water and the wine. And, and, so, and the deacon who actually distributes the uh, sacred body and blood of, of, of Christ in, in communion. Now, Mike earlier alluded to the, uh, the codification or the changes in law. And a lot of things happen between the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. A couple of things. First of all, the deacons in Rome were very, very powerful. Oh, boy, they controlled all the money. And let me tell you, the priest didn't like that. And so the priesthood began to, you know, and I'm saying this as, as a group, you know, but basically the diaconate began to be put out of business and fewer and fewer people were ordained as deacons to a permanent vocation. And coincidentally, this thing called the cursus honorum, the course of honor became codified, became law. So if you were going to be a cleric, you were tonsured, and then you uh, became a lector, and then a porter, and then an exorcist, and then an acolyte, and then you were ordained to the major order of subdeacon, and then you were ordained to the major order of deacon. But you could not be ordained a deacon unless you were qualified to be ordained a priest. So all of a sudden, there were no more people ordained permanently as deacons. They were ordained deacons only because they were going to be ordained as priests. Well, here's a newsflash. Women were never in the Corsus Honorum. Women, by this time, the female diaconate had, had resided in monasteries. And uh, the monastic uh, woman deacon was typically the abbess with a few others because they had to help with the, uh, the uh, prayers and also ministering to the sick. But the female diaconate died out for these two reasons. Uh, first of all, because abbeys were three reasons. Abbeys were failing. The diaconate as a permanent vocation was failing. And, and you couldn't be ordained a deacon unless you were going to be ordained a priest. So the, the most recent uh, uh, deacon in the West that I've seen, woman deacon I've seen in the West, was in Lucca, Italy. But again, you know, he probably didn't get the memo that he couldn't ordain a woman as a deacon. We have a lot lot later, and, and it, the practice is, is being restored in, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, a lot uh, uh, continual woman uh, deacons in the Armenian tradition uh, and uh, regulations, laws, canons in the Maronite tradition to ordain women as deacons, and uh, a restoration in, in Greek Orthodoxy uh, to this day. The Patriarch of Alexandria ordained five uh, and there are a few others here, there, and everywhere being ordained, with females being ordained to the diaconate. 
I'm curious because, yeah, I have noticed the news reports and, and the stories about how the Eastern churches, not necessarily in communion with Rome, but we recognize their orders, we recognize their sacraments as valid. How are they viewed nowadays theologically and, and what functions do they play in the Eastern church today? Well, they see a deacon is required for the liturgy. And so uh, I have actually seen videos of female deacons chanting the gospel. The, uh, the Greek church, uh, and in fact, uh, this week that we're, um, we are taping is, is really the week of women deacons in the Greek church. But the, the Greek church has a greater uh, societal need for deacons. The, the restoration of deacons in, women deacons in the Greek church depends uh, on the discussion is whether they're monastic women deacons, which was passed by the Orthodox Church of Greece in 2004, or uh, more social service women deacons, uh, which were mentioned really in the past few months by His All Holiness uh, Bartholomew, the Patriarch of, of Constantinople. And, and I think that uh, we find in the history in the West the same kind of division that you had the social service women deacons dying out first and the remainders in the monastic women deacons. And then you get a confusion between whether they were consecrated as abbesses or ordained as deacons, and, and it gets all, uh, all, all kind of fuzzy there. Yeah, I'm anxious to, to talk about the Amazon Senate. I think, Mike, we might want to get to that a little bit later, but um, as far as the, the sacrament... One point that I've been kind of playing around with in my mind is you mentioned in your book, this isn't going to be like an eighth sacrament where there's sort of like a seven B holy orders that women receive as a, as a part of the ordination to the, to become a deacon. So you understand if I'm, if I'm understanding this right, this is going to be, you, you kind of imagine women receiving holy orders, but it is a, of a, like a different character, right? So um, there are, not women priests, there's not women bishops, this is a women deacon, just like other deacons. Is there any other re-understanding or reimagining of how we should understand deacons that would apply to women and men that, you know, we kind of touched on a little bit with the unicity of orders, but um, kind of struggling to understand how we should understand deacons as not just priest light, but a whole separate order or a whole separate group of uh, ministers. Well, that the original diaconate, as I said earlier, uh, the deacon worked for the bishop, and it had really there weren't any priests. And uh, as the diaconate developed and became so strong in various areas in various times, uh, the priests uh, priesthood arrogated unto itself the ministries of deacons, uh, specifically taking over the uh, management of the church's treasury. To say that women, and Cardinal Casper actually uh, mentioned this in 2006, he said, oh, well, they can be called deaconesses and they can get dressed up and walk around the altar, but we can't ordain them. I think that's a pretty serious thing to say to the women of the church that they're not worthy of being ordained. And that, that's really where the, the kicker is. I don't like to say, you know, that they say women are invalid matter. You remember form and matter from studying sacraments. But I, I do remember years ago a Philadelphia canon lawyer, a priest, saying that ordaining a woman was like ordaining a lamppost or a cat. So you have to understand that there's a lot of misogyny in an, an argument that says women cannot receive the sacrament of order. So 
I'm not talking about uh, female deacons uh, light and female and female and male deacons are not priests light. The Second Vatican Council did make it clear that the diaconate was part of the sacrament of holy order. But that's uh, is, is Jack the deacon down the block qualified to be a bishop? You know, there's the cursus honorum was was gotten rid of in 1972 with a document called Ministeria Quatum, uh, which suppressed the major order of subdeacon and collapsed the minor orders into the two lay ministries of uh, acolyte and lector, which are typically received only by people who are candidates for the for the diaconate, and uh, and that's where the confusion I think arises now as well because. Uh, I think one assumes that the cursus on norm, uh, once you enter it, you're eligible for anything. Well, you're not. And I think that the church um, is seeing now the, the diverse ministry of something like 45,000 uh, deacons, most of them married men, around the world. That is really a, a, a ministry of charity, uh, a ministry of social service, a ministry of spiritual care. Uh, a ministry of preaching in some uh, cases where they're given faculties. But people, particularly non-Catholics, who I speak about, they, they say, well, what's the big deal about women deacons? And I say, well, there's a neuralgic response to the idea of a woman vested on the altar. And as I said earlier, that becomes the problem of the confusion. Uh, you know, if you're wearing vestments, are you kind of part of the priesthood? Well, you're not. And and it's, I think it's up to the church to uh, more clearly examine perhaps, and that may be, you haven't mentioned it, but that may be what the new commission is doing, to examine the role of the deacon and explain that it's not part of the priesthood. Phyllis, you talked about the the role of the deacon, and, and we've alluded to discussing um, the pastoral necessity. I don't know if you have a read on Pope Francis on this specific issue, but I certainly don't. But he has been very clear that there needs to be real leadership from women in the church that's concrete, that's not always deferential, that's not merely symbolic. We had the Amazon Synod recently, and one of the things that was discussed was the majority of these communities were led by women. They don't have access to priests. In a lot of cases, religious women fulfill a lot of the functions in terms of baptizing and preaching and proclaiming the word and bringing the Eucharist to people, there is this pastoral necessity. Could you, sorry, I'm going to, I'll probably edit this out. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Um, What are, what is your vision? Could you articulate for me your vision of a church that more fully incorporates the leadership of women? Well, uh, you know, my vision is in keeping with the magisterium and with the uh, interests of the Holy Father. I, I, I don't, he doesn't need me as a management consultant. What, uh, what I think that I see in what he's written um, in his response to the final document, you know, the, the Amazon Synod in October of 27, 2019 had uh, nine of its 12 language groups request women uh, deacons. And he at the end said he, uh, he had heard what they said, but he also then presented a response to the final document uh, called Great Amazonia, which, and at the beginning he says, this is not to replace the final document. 
this is to be read in in concert with the final documents. Uh, and he, he says, you know, uh, really the people of the Amazon know much more what they need than I or my courier need. And interestingly, he signed it from St. John Lateran as the Bishop of Rome, not from St. Peter's Basilica. But if you take a look at paragraph 94 in Greater Amazonia, he says that the Church of Amazonian features requires the stable presence of mature and lay leaders endowed with authority, familiar with languages, cultures, spiritual experience, and communal way of life in the different places, but also open to the multiplicity of gifts that the Holy Spirit endows on everyone. Now, that to me is a really loaded sentence, and he has a footnote to it. And the footnote is number 136. I know you're writing all this down. Um, 136 refers to Canon 517, paragraph 2. What's Canon 517, paragraph 2? Canon 517, paragraph 2 of the Code of Canon Law says that if a bishop needs to and he doesn't have a pastor, he can assign a deacon or a layperson or a group of persons, religious uh, or lay, married, I'm extrapolating here, or not. And uh, as the heads of these parishes, as the parish life coordinators, we call them, or pastoral life coordinators, we call them in the United States. Well, in the United States, we have something like 3,500 parishes without uh, resident pastors, and about 10% of them have assigned parish life coordinators, professional salaried parish life coordinators, who hire uh, clerics for sacramental uh, uh, needs of, of the parish. Well, now you look at the Amazon, 60% of the parish communities are led by women, mostly women religious, on an ad hoc basis. And so I think he's what he, and, and he goes on in this paragraph 94 to talk about lay leadership in, in the in the church. It's it's even more radical, if you will, than ordaining women as deacons. He's saying, let's get people who know the culture, who know the language, who know the people. We'll make them the official heads of the of the parishes on behalf of the uh, of the bishop when there's no uh, local priest available and then let them figure it out. So. Maybe sister uh, sister thinks that she is is now the parish life coordinator. Maybe she feels a vocation to the diaconate and she can request it. Or maybe she doesn't. She's still the parish life coordinator. Or maybe she has Jack the deacon, who's also a carpenter, but she needs a sacramental minister and she thinks Jack would be a good priest. So she can recommend to the bishop that Jack get ordained as a priest. But it's it, he's avoiding the idea of calling up a guy from somewhere else, from the United States, from Africa, from any place else, and parachuting him in and saying, move over, sister, this guy's the pastor. So it's a, it's a very radical uh, uh, concept there in terms of leadership and specifically late leadership. Well, it doesn't have to be a female of leading the parish. It can be a male lay leader just as well. And I know one diocese in the United States in the Northern Tier has about 10, and it's uh, it's literally an Antichrist discluse delegation. They got one from every category. They got a deacon. They got a religious brother. They got a religious sister. They got a married man. They got a married woman. They got a, you know. And so really anybody who is qualified, and he, he says professional, and making them professionals. These aren't volunteers. These are professionals. And then he, he makes, the, he intimates that they would be rotated 
um, just as priests are rotated every six years or so. So I think that's a very, a very interesting uh, concept in terms of women's leadership. Now, having said that, there are certain roles uh, in the church that a cleric can only a cleric can uh, can perform uh, and can fulfill. And so, if you're talking about uh, leadership of women, yes, you can have a woman as the uh, secretary of a dicastery of a, a major uh, office in Rome. Uh, you. It would. It's difficult for her not to be a cardinal and be uh, the head of a dicastery. Uh, but only in 1983 did canon law change that you had to be at least a priest to be a cardinal. So um, add back to the fact that we have three levels of cardinal. We have cardinal deacons, cardinal priests, and cardinal bishops. I sometimes think it's easier to have a, a cardinal deacon female than to just have a lay cardinal female. So, but again, that's an honorific, but it's an important honorific because the, the, the cardinalates are, the cardinals are advisors to the Pope. Um, so if you really want to have access, you got to be at the table. If you want to have leadership, you got to be at the table. Uh, the Pope is great on synodality. The next synod he's going to have is on the point of synodality. Uh, he did include about 10% of the uh, the hall were female at the last synod, but of course none of them had voting rights. Uh, but of course it was a, it was a, a, a synod of bishops, so you know I, I can argue both sides of the street on these things. I, th- I think though to um, to bring women into more leadership positions legally, I, I that's part of my argument for ordaining women as, as deacons. Only a cleric participating in a uh, given um, Mass is allowed to preach the homily. Only a cleric is allowed to render a judgment of nullity uh, as a single judge in a canonical trial. Only a cleric can sign certain papers. You know, there are many women chancellors around the country, but they most have to have a lot of their paperwork co-signed because they're they're not clerics. So I I think it becomes uh, almost window dressing if you give a woman a job either make up a job and give her a title or give her a job she can't completely fulfill. So it's, it's a long road up, but uh, I, I, the Holy Father certainly is uh, certainly is interested in, in incorporating um, more women because yeah, it's, it seems to make sense to me. If, you, if, you're, gonna, if you're going to run, a, uh, run an organization, you need both males and females view of, of the world. One question I had that was kind of we kind of touched on it in a lot of different ways and in different formats, but really that seems to be in your book you mentioned you know, there, there's sort of the theological argument this has been ordained by God we we can't touch it and then there's the sort of the it's created by man to serve a need and we have these laws of the church that support it so in your book I understand there's sort of a distinction made right so we have the um, things you can't change and the things you can change. And the things you can change do involve a lot of these laws that we've built up around who can and can't be a deacon, what they can do, what the priest can do. So there's a lot of things that have been sort of layered on and we've just accepted, but there's still a lot of flexibility even within this <laughs> current system. So uh, I guess one thing that Pope Francis has talked about a lot is how canon law serves the mission of the church, right? There's a law that it is subject to, which is charity. It's the, the law of the church, so the, the mission of the church, I should say. Um, I was hoping you could kind of expand on this idea. What what can be changed here? And what, why is it that women deacons 
are so important and, and how can they serve the mission of the church today? Well, there's, there's always been a collision between the law and the prophets. And uh, you find that in the time of Jesus, certainly the law, he was uh, running the wrong side of the law there too. There are 32 levels of papal, of documents coming out of Rome. And um, most of them are at the level of kind of parking regulations, you know, uh, and they can be changed pretty easily. As you go up the, the, the line, they get more and more serious. And when they get involved with doctrine, they're not changeable. You know, you, you're not going to say, even though it's probably a liturgical law, you're not going to say you can change the doxology in, in liturgy. You're not going to say you can, you can just say, uh, I, I, which I've heard, in the name of the creator, the redeemer, and the sanctifier, because Catholic teaching is it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there are these arguments and about, about what you can and cannot change. I think in terms of the diaconate, that's law. That's not doctrine. If you put a bar under the priesthood, which arguably or is argued was created by Jesus, by Christ. Well, the diaconate wasn't there. The diaconate is a, a creation of the church and what the church has done. And it, in my mind has, has ordained women as deacons, the church can do again. I think it's important to have women deacons because, because of the symbolic value. You know, what would it look like if a woman were vested standing in St. Peter's proclaiming the gospel? You see, until they allow that, until they restore that, I think everything they say about women in leadership and women in more important positions and listening to women and women are important and women are made in the image and likeness of God. Well, until you show me symbolically, it doesn't cut it. And I'm going to blame you for FGM. I'm going to blame you for wife beating. I'm going to blame you for dowry burning. I'm going to blame you for menstruation huts. Because what the Catholic Church says and teaches goes around the world to more than Catholics. And the 3.5, say, billion women in, in the world are at risk until the church says that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And it's, it's a very, very serious thing for the church to argue that women are not ordainable to the diaconate, especially given the history. And that, that's, that's aside from the priestly argument, uh, and, it, and it's the priest, priesthood argument is really not necessary, and, and it doesn't, just doesn't involve the priesthood. I've never done work on priesthood, and I don't, think, I, I don't think that the society or the culture really in the church could absorb women priests that easily in most places. You know, when we think, well, most places, when we're thinking about Europe and the United States, I would think in the Amazon, they wouldn't care. They couldn't care less. They just need Eucharist, you know. But uh, but the diaconate itself as a, a ministry of the church for the church, you know, the earliest and most documents call, call the diaconate uh, working in the name of the church, in Nomine Ecclesiae. It's only in the 2002 document that Dan mentioned earlier that this term in persona Christi Servi comes up in the person of Christ the servant. Well, in persona Christi Servi is not the same as in persona Christi Capitis Ecclesiae in the person of Christ, the head of the church, which is priesthood. And in any event, the in persona Christi Servi comment was dropped into the 2002 document to argue on behalf of the so-called iconic argument that women can't image Christ. 
And I just don't understand why in 2002, when the iconic argument was dropped in 1994 from priesthood, why they're trying to restore it in, in 2002. I, I think it's a very dangerous argument, the initiative order, because the reverse is also true, you know. If you, if you can't ordain women because as deacons because you can't ordain them as priests, and we know that women were ordained as deacons, then you're saying women can be ordained as priests. I mean, it just, it reverses on itself. And, it, and it's a very, very dangerous argument. Yeah, I think it's worth noting. So we have, the, the, we have a 1976 document, and then we have John Paul uh, II. And there's a lot of language, a lot of conversation had, a lot of theology done, but they seem to explicitly avoid talking about deacons. Right. They don't they don't mention deacons at all. I don't know if that's worth expanding on, but I just thought it was worth our viewers listening that a lot of the documents are cited to prevent women from being priests are they they explicitly avoid the conversation of deacons. Right. In nineteen seventy six the secretary to the International Theological Commission explained that that document, Inter and Signores Against Women Priests, specifically did not discuss women deacons, that the discussion of women deacons was an open uh, open question. And it still is. I mean, there's no doctrinal teaching against women as deacons. What we do have are canons of the early church allowing women to be ordained as deacons. We have canons written in the 18th century by the Maronite tradition, which uh, is an Eastern tradition, an Eastern Catholic tradition, but they never broke uh, from Rome. And the Holy Synod of Mount Lebanon in 1736 presented its canons to Rome in 1746, and they were agreed upon and ratified uh, the term as informa specifica, exactly as they were put forward by the Pope at the time. And uh, those canons included, one, Bishop, you can ordain a woman a deacon, and number two, this is what she does for a living. So, you know, that's that's for the, the Maronite tradition. So we really have, like yesterday in church years, uh, approved canons by Rome saying you can ordain women as deacons. And I think that's part of why it is an open question, is because women deacons were a reality and, and are in the Orthodox Church. I suppose the debate today is is precisely what they were, what what the metaphysics are that that go on. But I think what you what you've established pretty clearly is that the rights to make women deacons when they existed, where they existed, are identical to to how male deacons were ordained in the same time and place. Yeah, well, I mean, it's in 1987, a uh, theologian, Cipriano Vagagini, was asked to testify to a synod of bishops, and he said he saw no reason why, uh, first of all, he felt women uh, deacons were ordained in history, but he saw no reason why women deacons couldn't take up contemporary jobs, uh, tasks, and duties of deacons uh, today. And that basically is, is the bottom line. You know, what does a deacon do today? We know that deacons on Sundays get up and they may preach and they may mix the water and the wine and they will dismiss the assembly. We know in different dioceses and different parishes, deacons take up various charitable works and do catechesis and uh, manage, uh, for example, the altar boys and girls or the, uh, the marriage prep. But what about these couldn't a woman do? And that really is what Bagagini's comment was in 1987 when he he felt that, and he was asked by the Synod of Bishops to give his testimony, uh, that there was no, and it's in one of my books, his whole testimony, 
I don't know if he mentioned it, Women Deacons Essays with Answers. He gave his whole testimony and he said that there's nothing really. And this is 1987. So here we are now, 43 years later, and uh, people are saying, oh, women deacons can't do this. Well, maybe in some societies they can't. Maybe some um, parts of the Catholic Church can't accept a woman deacon. But I think re- reverting to uh, the discussion in Corrida Amazonia, Clearly, nine when nine of 12 language groups request women deacons, they know what they're talking about better than I do or Francis or the courier knows what's going on in the Amazon and what they need. And even the, the biggest attractor, uh, a French priest named Marimort, who argues that uh, women were not sacramentally ordained, at the end of his writing says, well, you know what, that's my argument. You can't really prove it because uh, revisionist history is revisionist history. It, to me, it doesn't matter whether they were or were not sacramentally ordained. It could matter if you come down and say they were, because then you say, well, what the church has done, the church has always done. But what the church has done, the church can do again. But that's not necessarily my argument. Uh, what I'm saying is that women and men deacons were ordained in the same ceremony, sacramentally or not. There's no reason today to bar women from something that is not part of the priesthood. Yes, and and that that's basically the observation that I was making. That would be a real substantial way, like you were saying, to open up the role of of women to delegate women deacons, whatever the metaphysics are of of their situation, to be able to proclaim the gospel, mm-hmm. um, to be ordinary ministers of of baptism and and holy communion, and I think Pope Francis has shown an openness to it. I'm going to ask you, maybe this is, maybe this is beyond uh, the scope, but you, you know, Pope Francis, correct? What has been your impression of him with regard to your scholarship and with regard to what you have presented? Well, I think, you know, the Holy Father accepted my nomination to the commission, which even had some people on the nominating committee surprised. I would say that the Holy Father knows full well who I am and what I do, and he has been uh, most gracious and kind. Uh, he's approached me a couple of times, and in, in, I live in his house when I'm when I'm there. And uh, he, he, I remember his coming directly. And in fact, scared the life out of me. I. Uh, I was leaving, it was September, I don't know what year, and uh, I had gone down, I was there for a meeting, but I went down to Sicily because a cousin was giving a speech, and I came back, and I was standing, I was just there overnight, it was a Wednesday, and uh, he uh, was in the uh, the sala, in the, in the like living room, and was coming across the front hall, and I was at the desk, and there were about 12 people in, in there, and I was kind of had my, I was talking to someone, I was actually talking to Cardinal Schoenberg, and we were chatting, and he came walking across and saw me, and started walking directly to me. Now, I knew that he had just been briefed for the public audience, and he saw me, and he came directly to me, and I, I just kind of stood there, and he just kept coming, and he and he said, thank you very much for coming, and thank you very much for your work, and I said something brilliant like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was uh, quite gracious and, and genuine, and, and that's the one thing. He, uh, 
He's this guy. He's the real deal. He he is uh, a genuinely prayerful, alert individual who knows everything that's going on around him, and he doesn't miss a trick. He is, uh, as I said, very gracious to me, and uh, I had another experience where when he comes home, the whole staff kind of lines up in the front hall, and I got caught in the front hall. So I'm doing my best to get behind a curtain and a potted palm so I'm not, you know, bothering the waiting, the, the gathering party. And I was he comes down one particular set of stairs, so I was across, so I didn't feel I was in too much trouble. But he goes and he goes around because I couldn't cross the floor because, he, you know. So he uh, goes around, shakes hands with everybody, and then he looks around the hall and realizes he did not greet me. And I was like, oh, geez, he saw me. So so he bows to me. So what do you do when the Pope bows to you? You bow back. You know what I mean? It just, um, he's just, a, a, he, he doesn't miss anything. And he's uh, just very, uh, and very careful of his time. He has the early mass, come, goes on at 6.55, finishes 7.30. He greets people. He's finished with his breakfast at, you know, five to eight and upstairs, you know, he, he's very, very, very careful of his time and he works incredibly hard, but he's, he's just a brilliant, uh, he's a brilliant preacher. If you've had the opportunity to see him preaching now that his, uh, his masses are online, that's the result of his getting up really early and praying the gospel. He, he, he's, he's really good. He's really, really good. But, uh, so in terms of my, my work, well, he lets me in the house and, uh, you just go over, you do your work, and you go home. I lived in the house uh, for uh, most of the first winter uh, because I volunteered to be everybody's teaching assistant. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very uh, it's a great honor to be able to uh, you know I bring you with me. I bring all the people of the United States, the women of the world, with me there because I I recognize that. Uh, not a lot of people have the opportunity to walk up to the front door of Casa Santa Marta and have uh, the Swiss Guard salute them or have the ability, because you're a guest of the house, a guest of the Holy Father, to get in the back door of St. Peter's you know, without waiting online. You know, uh, so these, these great honors, which have accrued to me because of my work on behalf of the church, I, I, I bring you with me and I bring, uh, bring the hopes and dreams of the people of God. And and, you know, people say, well, what if he says no? I said, well, then he says no. I'm not the Pope. I'm certainly not the Holy Spirit. I don't think the church will be denied what it needs. Uh, and I think it needs in these, these ter terrible days of, uh, of plague, really. Um, it needs the ministry of women in a more formal, more formal manner. Uh, and it, it needs to proclaim to the world that, as the title of my book says, women are, are icons of Christ. That's that's what it's about. Well, I want to thank Phyllis Zagano for joining us this afternoon. Her new book, Women, Icons of Christ, is published by Paulist Press. It's available from Amazon and from the publisher website, and we'll put up the links uh, so people can order your book. We're very grateful that you took the time to speak with us today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Dan for joining me. And uh, we'll see you next time.